Donald Trump appeared in court Tuesday to face 34 felony counts. We'll discuss the charges, but more importantly, where the case and the 2024 election will go from here. Then a major victory for Democrats in Wisconsin. Could this mean fair maps, abortion protections and greater voting access? Then we'll discuss a historic protest at the Tennessee Capitol. Fed up students made their voices heard. It's inspiring, makes me feel hopeful. But will lawmakers listen? This is Majority 54. Ravi, how you doing? I'm good, man. I, my hair is wet. I just came from the ocean. I'm supposed to be off this week, but I, there's no way I was going to miss this conversation. I'm out in Costa Rica. And, Happy you know, it's birthday. the one. Thank you. Uh, you know, the, all this action happening outside of my apartment in Manhattan, and I'm all the way over here, so I'm missing it. Um, so I, I just want to get your impression first, because you're going to be more steeped in this than I am, because I... I haven't done my like typical read all everything that everybody says about something. So I'm I actually have no idea how the world is reacting to this news. So I, I would love to hear about it from you. I can give you general vibe, right? Like the the general because we're going to get into the nitty gritty of like how certain Republicans have reacted and like what some of the initial polling reactions have been. But my general like sense for the vibe reacting to the Trump indictment is I guess not that surprising, which is that people are not that surprised. I mean, for mm -hmm. one thing, there's been weeks, if not months, of gradually people starting to understand that, oh, this might actually happen. Like a former president right. who clearly clearly has done some crimes might actually be held accountable or at least begin the process of being held accountable for those crimes. And so then there's that that sort of slightly surreal like, oh, wow, like he's actually presenting in court as a defendant uh, in a criminal case. But then quickly, it's like our ability to be shocked by things involving Donald Trump, just that muscle just atrophied so long ago, not even atrophied, <laughs> just uh, failed from overuse so long ago that I feel like the general vibe is like, OK, and almost to the point of being underwhelmed, which I think is dangerous for the prosecution and helpful to Trump. Right. And, you know, the one critical piece of background here is that these 34 counts all relate to one part of the crimes that are laid out in the statement of facts. So this has to do with Trump's reimbursement in 2017 to Michael Cohen. You know, obviously, we all know who he is, former lawyer and fixer. And just before the 2016 election, Cohen made a $130,000 hush payment to Stormy Daniels. And then the way that they characterize these uh, various interactions is what's issue in the indictment. Now, there's a statement of facts that talks about two other occurrences that have not yet been charged, but all 34 counts basically have to do with business records, uh, potential fraud. And as we've talked about previously in this podcast, in order to turn that crime into a felony, they're going to have to prove that it was in furtherance of another crime. And that's where things get interesting is that Bragg and the DA's office don't have to say what the other crime is yet, but they've kind of floated multiple theories. You could see these theories in the statement of facts. Bragg talked about them in his press conference. It could be election law. It could be tax crimes, which I think is the biggest piece of new information that we got this week. So I'm not sure, Jason, like, I don't know if I've like moved in any way in terms of like my assessment of the strength or weakness of this case right now. It's about, I think, what we would have expected based on reading these court documents. Well, one of the sort of X factor that everybody knows is out there that nobody really talks about is that while you look at this and you go, OK, it is unique, it is novel, like they've they've never they've never done this, uh, you know, charging this as a felony because of an underlying crime when that crime is federal right mm -hmm. not a state yeah. so that's new all, when you when you you consider all that on paper there are there are questions about the strength of the case but then the x factor is this is going to be in front of most likely uh, a manhattan uh, jury and now i know trump wants to like move it to your your uh, stomping grounds of staten island for <laughs> obvious reasons right that's it's like you know, the Missouri of New York City or whatever. But like, there'll be guarantee, uh, guarantee at least one juror in Staten Island would, would refuse to it, no matter yeah. what. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, but if it, if it stays where it's supposed to be, then you've, you've got to wonder, 
you know, as far as a jury goes, how much the strength of the case matters. But the question is, how much does a judge potentially narrow the case? If a judge looks at the law and says, you know, this is not something that's going to go to the jury, that's now we're not here to be legal analysts, um, but that's sort of what the Trump lawyers are counting on. And it is a unique theory right now. Right. Anyway, we can go to some some brag on it and then we can go back to for sure uh, to the theory. Yeah, I, I do think you're right. Like there's so many questions from a legal and factual basis that we don't know the answers to yet. Uh, but one thing is for for sure is that Bragg seems fairly confident. Let's go to a video of the press conference he made after uh, Trump appeared at court. We today uphold our solemn responsibility to ensure that everyone stands equal before the law. No amount of money and no amount of power changes that enduring American principle. One of the three people that they paid to keep quiet was a woman named Stormy Daniels. Less than two weeks before the presidential election, Michael Cohen wired $130,000 to Stormy Daniels' lawyer. That payment was to hide damaging information from the voting public. The participant scheme was illegal. The scheme violated New York election law, which makes it a crime to conspire to promote a candidacy by unlawful means. The $130,000 wire payment exceeded the federal campaign contribution cap, and the false statements in AMI's books violated New York law. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it seems to me like he's he he's laying out, like, and I mentioned this before, he doesn't have to win every one of these theories. Like, first of all, there's 34 counts. They're all kind of related, though, but the theory of what the second crime was, he just needs to prove one of them. Now, the challenge with Trump always is and will continue to be that the guy doesn't email, doesn't appear to text a lot. He doesn't keep a lot of records. So the key to the prosecution is going to be what Trump was told and understood about the nature of the payment to Cohen uh, and its legality under federal and state law and how it would be recorded in the books, right? Because he he needed, you need to prove actually all of those things. You can't just mm-hmm. say that he thought that the first crime happened. You need to also prove that he knew it was in furtherance of the second crime. And you have to do it using multiple layers of evidence. And we don't know what that evidence is yet because discovery hasn't happened yet. So do we have something from Trump where he acknowledges that he knew any of these things? We know there are tapes, but those tapes have to do with the different, the Karen McDougal catch and kill, which is not the Stormy Daniels catch and kill story right those are two different things you know i know it's like it's not the it's not the porn star jason it's you know it's the playboy model yeah the playboy model is what we have the audio of now that will be politically damaging but unless they really move to to make that part of the underlying crime here which is very possible then we have to kind of wait and see right and cohen's testimony is not going to be enough Uh, that that i'm pretty certain of I think what is frustrating about this for people who would like to see Trump held accountable for his behavior over the last name your amount of years um, is that so much of what he did that is outside the law was done as president and the the manner in which you would be held accountable would be through impeachment and removal, right? Um, And then maybe eventually criminal prosecution after that connected to that stuff, right? It would have been the stuff with Ukraine. It would have been those things. Now, there are some other cases, and we can talk about those in a minute, that are floating out there. We won't get into them much because we've done it before. But I think that there's understandably a lot of frustration that people are like, after all of this stuff that this guy put us through and all the criminality, we're going back to like the original thing. We're going back to the Stormy Daniels 2016 payment as where the prosecution is. And then we're limiting ourselves to this sort of... uh, you know, pretty narrow battlefield on which to fight this on. And I'm not criticizing. I'm saying it's frustrating that that is what is happening, that those are the circumstances, but that's what they are. Now, when you look back, you go, I mean, there's a there's an argument out there that says, okay, well, I mean, is it necessarily 
trying to violate another law when a guy who a rich guy who com- who committed who had an extramarital affair is trying to pay somebody off so they don't say anything right i mean you know if, if i'm trump's lawyer i'm in there going look you're trying to make this a crime this is not the only dude in here who tried to pay somebody off so that his wife wouldn't find out right like mm-hmm. that's not a crime that's what i would say mm-hmm. if i were his lawyer now the thing about it is is that when you however put yourself back in the context of the moment and you can pretty i think easily demonstrate that it is wholly related to the campaign because he had just moments before barely survived the access Hollywood stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and that, and, and so clearly he was just barely hanging on in terms of this sort of thing, bringing him down. So yeah. I don't think there, it's by any means an easy case, but, but it's context is important and putting yourself back in that point, time traveling back there. There are multiple parts of the statement of facts statement of fact, which is the document that the prosecution put out, that suggests that they that he Trump voiced in various contexts that he knew that this was the intent was to affect the election, and that's also uh, what the the Inquirer people also did, right? Like the Inquirer people did, I think, what is called a non prosecution agreement, where they they admitted that they were doing catch and kill not just to help Trump for his image, but to. Uh, further his election goals, right? Mm-hmm. So the question is like, what do we have to show that beyond statements from not very credible people in the case of the Inquirer, right? Now, you know, if I'm if I'm the prosecution, I'd be like, well, like, you know, you put multiple layers of these people together, especially like at the point now where they, you know, the the Inquirer is, they have a different posture than, than Cohen. Like they haven't been prosecuted. So mm-hmm. one could argue that their incentives are very different. All this to say, this is developing this case. What's really interesting, Jason, is it's going to be a case that's going to play out in the middle of this election. So there's some speculation that this trial could happen right before the Iowa caucuses. Like mm-hmm. how this guy, you know, in Trump's mind, there's no difference between the law and politics and comms. And that's how he's going to play this, right? I doubt he's mm-hmm. going to be really sitting in the room with his lawyers, gaming out legal strategy. He's going to try to take it to the people and we could play a clip he's already doing that after being admonished by the judge for inciting violence he went down to mar-a-lago and gave essentially a campaign speech uh, all about this case and about how he's the victim let's go to that clip and i never thought anything like this could happen in america never thought it could happen the only crime that i have committed is to fearlessly defend our nation from those who seek to destroy it. <laughs> I mean, you know what I noticed about that speech? And Ben did a video talking about this a lot, but he did not seem like a confident person. Now, no. why would he be? He just got indicted and for a crime he, he did. <laughs> you know? Right. But he came across to me and has been coming across to me as for the first time in a while, really scared. Yeah. Uh, He's, I mean, and he should be, right? Because like, it's no longer out of the realm of possibility that he could go to prison for this. Yeah. It reminds me a little of when he got COVID, like the body language of when he got COVID. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 He, actual fear. Um, But yeah, the whole like, I I think you're right that he, he is, he's not going to be in there like figuring out legal strategy. But he he views the court of public opinion and the court of law as one and the same and figures that he can do what he's always done, which is bully the court of law using the court of public opinion. And he's not entirely wrong. It's why the judge is admonishing him about anything that would incite civil unrest, because the judge is rightfully worried about Trump turning people, literally turning people on the judge, the prosecutors, like death threats, which I'm sure have already happened. Um, right. So and that's his intent. That's that's how I think he's going to contribute to his legal defense. Yeah, it's worth noting that there was there's been a lot of fears that even outside of the, the courthouse in Manhattan, that there would be violent demonstrations so far, like things are way more toned down than people expected. I mean, there have been things that have happened outside of the courthouse, but nothing on the order of like the January 6th level violence that some people were predicting now. I don't really want to make too much out of that yet because we're still early in this process. There's so much yeah, that can happen. He hasn't dialed up the lever yet. I mean, yeah. you know, he's he's making at this point, he's making insinuations. You know, yeah. he's not and and I I can remember you and I talking about prior to January 6th, you and I talking about, 
you know, his rhetoric escalating, but being like, well, it doesn't really seem like it's causing what he's wanting it to cause. But then he just amped it up and boom, we got January 6th. So if we're at the point where like they're trying to move forward with a, a serious evidentiary hearing or or something like that, it would not surprise me at all if he's just like people need to take back this courthouse. Right. Yeah. And then then you end up with some really scary stuff happening. So uh, well, but right now he's just trying to capitalize on it politically. Yeah. And, and it seems like, you know, to a certain extent, this I, I'm not of the it helps or hurts kind of dialogue, but his poll numbers have gone up, which is totally predictable. Now, what that represents is anybody's guess. That could just be a primal scream from Republican GOP voters just saying, I want to be heard that I don't like this prosecution. And then after a while, they get worn down and go to DeSantis. We don't know. Right. But we do know, like, as this case has been heating up, Trump's standing has improved. But with the general election audience, you know, polling suggests that something on the order of 60 percent of Americans writ large voters uh, approve of this indictment. So it's possible it could help him in the primary, hurt him in the general. I do think it's too early for that. What, though, is really important to recognize right now is there's a couple contours of what's playing out nationally from a legal perspective that we should take note of. Number one is we still have the Fulton County case, which that could drop any day. You also have the DOJ cases, both involving January 6th, but also the document issues. And there was the crime, you know, the, the judge was invoking recently in that case, the crime fraud exception. It seems like Trump's in trouble there on that case. So those are a couple of cases that at any point could be added to this. And, you know, I firmly believe that at least the Fulton County one is going to be way stronger than this Manhattan case. But the bigger legal issue here, Jason, is going to be now we're seeing calls on the right, totally predictable, to open up investigations and indictments mm-hmm. of Democrats, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, et cetera. Now, I, I've been listening to people talk about this saying, yeah, it's, it's hard to do. Like, you know, the nexus of, of Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden to pick a red state or red county is not the same of Trump to New York, where he has all of his businesses and has been conducting activity. But I do not think that's going to stop people here. I think we're going to see it. I don't think they're going to. There's even if 99 percent of Republican elected districts attorney. How do we say district attorneys? District attorneys. Districts attorneys. District. Just say DAs. DAs. Prosecutors. Even if 99 percent of them do the right thing here, all it takes is one percent. And so I well, think this is coming. There, there's a there's a precedent for how this works, or like a, an example for how this plays out, right? And it is, there's several. Uh, we, we could start with the Obamacare litigation that all the attorneys general did uh, that clearly had very little legal standing at first until the Supreme Court makeup changed. Uh, and then it got a little more scary. But, but you know, every Republican attorney general in the country uh, that was from a pretty Republican state and wanted to be a senator or a governor, were bringing completely frivolous lawsuits on Obamacare. And then they did that move again on other things. They did it on uh, student loans. They did it on COVID. Uh, at, at one point, the attorney general of Missouri, who's now the U.S. senator from Missouri, proving my point, uh, sued China. Like, I mean, it just the, this is this is like perfect for that. Right. If you if you are a, a local prosecutor in uh Montana, and you would really like to win a Republican primary for governor and skip the steps that might be politically in your state between prosecutor and governor. Well, I mean, get yourself on Fox News becoming Mm -hmm. the Joe Arpaio of the defending the presidency by indicting Biden. Right. I mean, like that that's that's where I see this going. So it will be very political, but still very dangerous because things that start as very political can become very real, right? Very quickly. It can start as just rhetoric. And the thing about all of this that is so interesting to me is it's really crystallized for me how the Trump BS machine actually works and how the Republican machine works, because we've always for so long thought of it as like, Bannon and Trump and them pump all this stuff that's completely fabricated into the system. And then they get people to run with it. But I actually feel like so much of it is more like they wait to see they ha, they have the event happen and then they wait to see what bubbles up on its own and then they run with it. My example is like right now, 
Trump in talking about some of the other cases against him uh, is talking about the documents case and saying, well, you know, as president, as soon as I took those documents with me, they became declassified. Now, that's not a thing that Trump thought. It's not a Mm -hmm. thing that Trump thought at any point. But he started to see some, you know, people who were biased toward him and claim some expertise claim that stuff. And he waited. He didn't do it right away. He waited a while. He liked to see which one caught on and then he uses it. He's done the same thing with so many different pieces, right? Like all of the Ukraine, uh, Russia stuff. He waits for other people to defend him in weird ways. He he just did this whitewashing of the of the January 6th insurrection, but he went a long time before he did that. He waited a long time to really fully embrace the idea that that was you know, patriotic and not an insurrection because he wanted to see what kind of legs it got on its own. It's funny because we think of him as a leader of this nefarious, uh, you know, part of American life now where there's all this mis- misinformation, but he's actually just a follower and a manipulator mm-hmm. of it. He takes what comes to the top. And so we don't yet know what he's going to take that's going to come from the to the top of the BS reasons to defend him and all this stuff. And the reason I think that's interesting is because we are not seeing very many mainstream defenses of him. We are seeing mainstream uh, uh, attacks on Bragg, right? Yeah. But nobody wants to come out and defend Trump. And 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 so a, a few examples. Um, there's been some tweets about this that I thought were really interesting. We can start with Marsha Blackburn's uh, tweet where, you know, she says Alvin Bragg is a radical left wing activist abusing his power in an attempt to help Biden remain in office. Now, what's interesting to me about this, this one really accomplishes what Trump's after because this this escalates him to the general election. It makes it about Biden and Trump. And that's what Trump Mm -hmm. wants, right? The guy's a former president. He didn't want to be bogged down in a primary, right? And when we look at the polling where people are are moving back toward him, I think it's temporary because he's the only Republican candidate in the news right now. It doesn't matter why. So this is the kind of thing he's after. I was thinking about this. In a weird way, this makes DeSantis look small, which is such a bizarre thing to say. (laughs) It's It's so crazy. Because he's not involved in this back and forth. You know, so, so... I, I want to think that's temporary. I do. Because mm-hmm. it is. I, I want to say it's temporary. But that's you and I using our brains as mm-hmm. logically thinking human beings. And I, I am not sure I want to attribute that level of, of, of just reasonableness to this primary electorate. Well, and it's to the point you made earlier, which here's a first. J.D. Vance seems to be making a very similar point. We can go to his tweet. You were talking about it being the middle of a presidential election. When I first saw J.D. Vance saying saying this, he said, Bragg's entire career is about normalizing violent crime. All right, that's something they're all saying. It's like the talking point that they feel is safe harbor for them because it doesn't have anything to do with Trump. Uh, but then he says, just crazy that he's bringing this weak case in the middle of a presidential election. And when I first read that, I was like, dude, it is it is April of an off year. And then I thought about, what you were mentioning earlier, which is, you know, not just this case, but the others, if they go on a traditional trial schedule, they are going to happen in the middle of a presidential election. And so to your point, there is a way in which it, it might not be temporary, uh, which is that it it could just keep happening in the middle of the primary. And, you know, that can really work for Trump because our media has learned from the mistake they made in 2016. In 2020, they learned from it, right? They didn't, I mean, look, Trump got plenty of airtime, but they didn't look at every single thing he did and take it at face value, treat it like it was legitimate. I mean, they they try they didn't put every single crazy speech he gave. They didn't interrupt the news for every single one of them, regardless of what the ratings did other than Fox. Right. Um, And but this is new. This is this is like jumping the shark, but it may not be jumping the shark in the bad way. It's changing the narrative to where people are. Well, now it's a president a former president that might go to prison. So it's it's a whole new question. Like, how do right. they not cover it wall to wall? And and that is the way I'm now realizing if this if it if this could actually help Trump, that's how. And it's mostly in the primary because I, yeah. I just still do not see how in the general election that's good. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I do too. And I also don't think this is the end of the story. I don't think this is the last prosecution he's going to see during this period of time. Now, it's also worth mentioning for listeners at home who are getting this argument in the middle of a primary or whatever. Well, before it was while he was president. 
right? Now we're in the quote middle of a primary. Meanwhile, you know, how many people have declared right now? Trump made it clear he wanted to declare early. Maggie Haberman and other people have talked about this in particular because he knows this helps him. It's kind of, mm-hmm. he thinks it shields him from some of these prosecutions. Now he's gotten prosecuted, but still, you know, this is this is not unique to Trump, by the way. Netanyahu and Berlusconi have done the same thing. Now, let's say he runs and he loses the primary or runs and wins the primary, loses the general election. And then he just turns around and announces he's going to run again four years later. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean he's just totally immune all the time? Like, this seems to about be about as low point as there is right now in the sort of political process to 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 go about this case. Now, that doesn't mean that we should just ignore the political realities here. Like, I, I'm a believer that whenever there is, you know, two people of different parties and one person's overseeing a criminal investigation or another, you need to be really careful. You need to be really transparent. You need to recuse at certain points so that career people take over. I've talked about all that stuff on this podcast before, but none of that means that somebody should be above the law. And I think that's part of what his people are saying is like, any crime, basically, he commits during this period of time, he should be immune. It, well, it's, <laughs> it is so interesting that none of the people who blindly defend him will blindly defend him right now, right? right? Because, right. because, you know, you can believe two things at once. And I think, frankly, a good amount of, of people probably believe these two things right now, which is that there is a heavily political aspect to this prosecution and he's guilty of the crimes. Yeah. I actually <laughs> you know? think that's what most people think. Like, honestly, I talk yeah. to a lot of liberals who are like, ah, most people I talk to, including liberals, are like, ah, this wouldn't be the case I brought. I'm not sure. But he definitely did it. And, exactly. I, don't, and I, don't, I don't get like that, like heated, like even like, I, you know, I have a lot of Trump people on my feeds of various social media. I'm surprised by how little activity I'm seeing on this, honestly. Now, I don't want to, once again, I don't want to over-index here because we've seen this story before where things heat up. Uh, at certain key points but right now right now i'm not seeing it here's i think the place to end on here is here's what makes this scary now moving forward okay um in terms of him inciting people to violence and things like that is that we have it many times in the past thought okay well trump really has his back up against the wall now this is where trump is the most dangerous we thought it during impeachment we thought it uh in clearly you know, the insurrection was a was a result of that, right? It was like he was about to have to leave office. But now, now it's like either Donald Trump wins the Republican primary or he might go to prison, right? Like, I mean, yeah. that's how he sees it in his mind. He has to become the Republican nominee for president in order to have a chance to really stay out of prison. That's whether right or wrong. I believe that's what he thinks. And that's why he looked so scared in that speech. And it's why we're there's farther and not to scare everybody but it can get more dangerous and it it probably will uh as a result of that well on that rosy note we're going to take a break (laughs) and hear from our sponsors and actually get to some good news we're going to talk about this wisconsin uh, supreme court race and some awesome results down there we're going to talk about tennessee where we're seeing some you know young people getting involved in, in activism and pushing their state legislature to take meaningful action on gun reform And so we've got some good news that will come to right after this. I've never been able to compost before. I remember I had a neighbor when I was a kid up the street who he was really into composting. But this is like 30 years ago. So everybody was like, what is that guy doing? It seems strange. But now I'm a 41-year-old man and I have a wife and two children and we produce so much trash. It's like, I, I, I literally have the system set up where because we get two bags of trash we're allowed at, at the end of our driveway where I got a, a, there's a neighbor across the street. It's an elderly couple. They don't produce much trash. What I've been doing for years is like then bringing a bag over there and they understand I get to use one of their two spots. Well, no more. I, I got a Lomi. Uh, so now that I have a Lomi, Lomi allows me to turn my food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. So Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps to dirt in under four hours. What that means for me is instead of this massive three bag production of trash that we have every week, I'm down to one bag. I now can be the guy who can say to people who like haven't figured out composting, I'm like, you know, you can use one of my spots if you want. All because of Lomi, which is very exciting for me. This may not sound super exciting to you. It is extremely exciting to me. 
Plus, I feel so great knowing that I'm composting and creating soil instead of waste. I have, I have basically a limitless supply of dirt uh, should I choose to garden. Uh, if you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash Majority54 and use the promo code Majority54 to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to L-O-M-I dot com slash majority 54 and use promo code majority 54 at checkout food waste is gross let Lomi save you a cold trip out to the garbage can times have been kind of tough recently with everything from inflation to the economy there are lots of factors that can add stress to someone's life if you're living paycheck to paycheck like many americans are it can be really stressful when unexpected medical or auto or travel expenses come up when these expenses creep up on us and it's hard to keep track of it all it can all seem to be a little bit overwhelming and that's why we're so excited about our sponsor Dave. With our sponsor, Dave, you can get your money sooner without worrying about how much money you have to get through the week. Dave is the banking app that can help you get up to $500 instantly with extra cash. With Dave, there's no interest, late fees, or credit check. If you're in a pinch and need some extra help, download Dave and think of it as a helping hand from the future you. Download the Dave app from the App Store right now or go to dave.com slash m54. That's dave.com slash m54. Sign up for an extra cash account and get up to $500 instantly. For terms and conditions, go to dave.com slash legal. Instant transfer fees apply. Banking services provided by Evolve Bank and Trust. Member FDIC. All right, Ravi, we just talked about a lot of stuff having to do with things happening in court. Uh, But I think to you and I, this is not actually, believe it or not, the biggest story about a court uh, or things happening in a court in the country. Actually, the most impactful, most important court story comes out of Wisconsin. Am I right? Yeah. So Janet Protasiewicz, who's a liberal Milwaukee County judge, overwhelmingly defeated Daniel Kelly, who is a conservative former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice who wanted to return to the bench uh, with more than 95% of votes counted by this morning. Uh, Protasiewicz led by 11 percentage points in a state that's kind of, I wouldn't say 50-50, but this is a state that's you know, hotly contested every Wh- cycle. Wisconsin was once described to me as I was there uh, politicking, you know, like campaigning for I don't remember. I think Tammy Baldwin and um, a political activist there was talking to me and he he knew I was from Missouri. And he's like, see, now you come from a state that used to be purple and now is red. He goes, we are we are not a purple state. People think of us as a purple state. He goes, we are a blue state some years and some some years we are a red state. But he was mm-hmm. like, but we're not we're you know, he's like, we're we're neither he was like, we're not purple. We're just one or the other all the time. For sure. Now, this is significant for many reasons, but most importantly, because she gets a 10-year term. This is a 10-year. <laughs> this is amazing. I, by the way, I want a 10-year term, whatever I do. <laughs> yeah. Imagine like I rest, rest, rest easily at night knowing I've got have, 10 years. Have either you or I ever actually done a job for 10 years? I think the uh, ar- I, I did the army no. for eight and it was part-time for a lot of it. Yeah. No, I have not done a job for 10 years. Yeah. So, I, I mean, like, I can't even imagine. <laughs> well, I'm going to move to Wisconsin and run for the, the, the state yeah. Supreme Court. I mean, now, even my even my my oldest son is nine and a half. I haven't even been a dad for 10 years. I mean, it's a long well, you're time. You're getting close, man. Uh, I yeah. want to. I'll give you seniority, okay? Now, okay. I'm going to give you seniority over this podcast because it is your podcast. Now, hopefully, <laughs> I can I can earn a 10-year term from you and Diane. Every day. Uh, okay. But the... Okay, well, now... Most importantly, this gives us a 4-3 majority on the court, which has been controlled by conservatives since 2008. Now, we will hold this majority till at the very earliest 2025 when a liberal justice's term expires. We're going to have to defend that seat. A conservative justice's term ends the following year in 2026. And this- oh, good. So we can all be amateur Wisconsin Supreme Court like observers for the rest of our lives. Well, that's why we had, you know, we've had Ben Wickler, the, the chair of the yeah. Wisconsin Democratic Party on here before. We've talked to Wisconsin. Um, what was uh, the 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 young woman and her parents, uh, uh, um, right? Amanda, yeah. I think Amanda yeah. and her, yeah. um, I don't remember. How but we have listeners from Wisconsin. Name. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry <laughs> uh, but the so Megan. now. This <laughs> just naming random people's names. <laughs> I'm pretty uh, sure I'm right. So Christy, no, that's not actually. No, no it's but not the, Christy. The, the, so this this court has actually been carrying water for Republicans. It's a highly partisan court over the years. It's certified as constitutional. Scott Walker's early overhaul to state government. 
uh, including some critical stuff around public employee unions. It's, uh, you know, back them up on voting restrictions, like a requirement for state-issued identification and ban on uh, ballot drop boxes. It was one. Um, it was the only one in the country in terms of state Supreme Courts to agree to hear Trump's challenge to the presidential election. Now, uh, this is when he sought to invalidate 200,000 ballots from the state's two largest Democratic counties. And the court rejected this claim only for three. So it required one conservative to side with liberals on procedural grounds. So that's that's scary. So like you can imagine if this would have flipped, you've got you know a court that could be potentially primed to uh, do some you know really dangerous stuff around elections. They've also weakened the current Democratic governor Tony Evert's abilities, including his line item veto. Yada yada yada. I can go on. It's a bad court. Now it's going to be in our hands. Let's go to the victory speech from the victor. They were ready to put aside the partisanship and put aside the extremism and to have an impartial court and a court that makes decisions based on the law, not on a political agenda. Here's what I love about that speech, right? Is Well, what I love about it, what I think is funny about it is um, it's a lot less partisan than the campaign. <laughs> Yeah, like if we're gonna be real, right? I mean, For like sure. it's it's kind of funny uh, the difference, and and I know we were gonna do it later, but I actually want to tee it up now. Uh, the Daniel Kelly uh, speech. Before we go to, it, I'll say that, and we're gonna talk about this more. That uh, Janet Protasewicz, we're getting better at saying her name, Judge Protasewicz, Justice Protasewicz. Now, um, she, you know, she was pretty open and clear during the camp. She was like, here's what is going to happen when I'm, yeah. when I'm on the court. Uh, and, and it's, so it is just kind of ironic that, you know, it's sort of almost like she's pivoting to a general election. But the truth is what I like about it is that now she's like, okay, well, I'm not going to talk that way. Now I'm going to do the job. Now I'm going to yeah. be more down the middle and, and that way versus let's hear from, you know, let's hear the not conceding concession speech uh, of the silver medal winner, uh, uh, Judge Kelly. And it brings me no joy to say this. I wish that in a circumstance like this, I would be able to concede to a worthy opponent. But I do not have a worthy opponent to which I can concede. This was the most deeply deceitful, dishonorable, despicable campaign I have ever seen run for the courts. It was truly beneath contempt. Now I say this not because we did not prevail. I do not say this because of the rancid slanders that were launched against me, although that was bad enough. But that is not my concern. My concern is the damage done to the institution of the court. My opponent is a serial liar. She's disregarded judicial ethics. She's demeaned the judiciary with her behavior. And this is the future that we have to look forward to in Wisconsin. Jason, now okay. I know you've given, I gotta say one thing. Before we get to the substance of this, You've given some concession speeches, I think. You've given one. one. I can I only one, imagine yeah. that there people were cheering you on for an amazing campaign, and there was a lot of energy in that room, a lot of people thankful for an amazing race that you ran. What I find very fascinating about this particular one is he's making these barbed statements, and he's like, this cheater, no integrity. And people are like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. That's what he's getting back. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you keep going. And it's like almost like it's being held in like in a library or something. Like, what's going on in this room? Like, yeah, what's happening? What's going on, Mega? Where's your energy? I don't, I'm going to regret saying this. Like, you yeah. know, like, 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 come on. Like, that I was, expect I expect more from you. You know, that was something we don't usually see from Mega, and I think it was progress. And here's why: that was the beginning of the grieving process of a loss. That was Daniel right. Kelly who is one of one of the things that, that Janet Pernasewicz said about him that was true that he thinks is a lie is that she referred frequently to him being an election denier. And she talked about the danger of having an election denier on the Supreme Court in a state like Wisconsin that that could end up swinging the 24 election, right? Um, now, <laughs> 
The reason I say it's progress is because that is that guy acting out in anger, one of the stages of grief, and processing his loss, meaning he and the other people in that room were actually processing it as a loss. They were actually saying we lost the election. He wasn't saying that she, you know, had votes cast that were illegal. He wasn't saying that he's actually the real winner. He's not like on Carrie Lake Island, you know, where she's pretending she's the governor right now. He's not doing any of that. I take that as a step forward, I guess, Uh, you know, but it does bring us to what this campaign was like. Yeah. So what is true is that she was very explicit about what she do. So she made explicit support for abortion rights. And she talked about the maps that Republicans that gave Republicans a near supermajority. She called them rigged and unfair. Now, you may think that's a bit too much, but let me let me tell you something here just about the gerrymandering. This is a state that's 50 50 but probably leans Democratic, right, based on some of the, the most recent presidential results and the gubernatorial races, et cetera. But it's, let's pretend it's 50-50. You'd imagine if it's 50-50 that a Senate, Wisconsin State Senate, with 33 members would be 15 this way, 16, 17 the other way, et cetera. It's not what it is. It's 20 Republicans and 12 Democrats and one open seat. And this is the largest majority held by one party in the Senate at the start of the session since 1971. So when she say, says it's rigged and unfair, I'm not sure that's biased. That's just calling it like it is. Yeah. And it, it what it took me back to is, um, like so many other things uh, anymore, there are these quaint notions of uh, norms and, uh, uh, I don't know, traditions that we held that seem to be blown away, but that I remember because I'm old enough now. And I bet you do too, because we went to law school around the same time. I don't know about you, I remember getting quite a lot of instruction, uh, particularly when we had to take the professional responsibility exam about what people were allowed to say when trying to get judgeships, mm-hmm. or what what lawyers were, about, were allowed to say about judges. Um, and I remember it being given to us as like, the kind of thing that was non-negotiable, right? That like, mm-hmm. if you were if you were going after a judgeship, whether through a, a a process or an election, you weren't allowed to say how you would rule on things, and yeah. and that always made a lot of sense to me. And in a perfect world, that's how I would want it to be. I mean, you you know what I'm talking about, right? For you remember sure. all this from law school, for sure. Yeah. So in a perfect world, that's how it would work, and so that's why I'm a huge proponent of not electing judges, particularly statewide judges or appellate judges. I, I you know, I've spent enough time in in rural parts of, of my state and of other states to understand that, that there's usually not a huge problem with in rural areas electing the trial judge. It's the local person that people trust. It's not like they're, you know, going to necessarily do the bidding of some big campaign donor because they don't generally have to run a big campaign to become the right. judge. That's different. But in something like this, this is a $40 million race. It's the most expensive judicial race ever, right? That's that's where it, it, it you know, stepping back from this and this individual election it's hugely problematic, right? When right. like when judges for state Supreme Court seats have corporate donors and then those corporate donors are going to be represented or so it is hugely problematic. But but all these norms have been broken. And so when we look at, OK, we can we can sit around and we can do what Democrats frequently do, which is we can uh, we can be nostalgic for those norms and those times. Or we can recognize that all of this is about power and that mm-hmm. if we care about those sorts of ethics and and morals and and things being conducted a certain way, well, then we have to win. And that meant that Judge Protosewitz had to go out and say, this is what's going to happen if I'm the judge. And I think part of that, frankly, Ravi, is that it's a statewide election that's nonpartisan. So like what they're trying to do is like they're trying to have it both ways in Wisconsin, right? They Mm want to be like, well, it's nonpartisan, but it's elected. Well, everybody's got a, I mean, the, 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 the power structure doesn't change. So in some ways it was her going, I need to let everybody know I'm the liberal and he's yeah. not. Um, yeah. And so that's that's how we end up here. Yeah, I, I'm i looking at this and looking at the indictment, just looking at just the way institutions are treated generally. And we're winning these like short-term, really important battles right now. But at the same time, we're playing under a, under a set of rules and conditions that have largely been created by our opponents. Does that make any sense? Like the crumbling of the institutions is largely their fault. Now, mm-hmm. 
if we were to be like, hey, I'm going to just push my hands up against this crumbling wall, you know, while you, you know, raid my business or whatever. I don't know what metaphor. I don't know what town we're in. Maybe we're in ancient Rome. I don't know. But like, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, we're, we're, it would be foolish to unilaterally disarm and pretend like there isn't a thing like the Federal Society, which is an explicit promise about what people mm-hmm. are going to do. So that's been long happening. We've been getting our asses kicked on that. Uh, we, we can't pretend like we don't have a president who's just flouted every rule and law he can and has gotten away with it forever. But at the same time, like I do believe in norms and institutions. So I'm I'm hoping that whatever is going on right now, we get to a point where we're in a strong enough place to set the conditions for the future and reaffirm institutions and norms, because this is a rather scary period of time, not just because Republicans are Republicans, but because there's a reason why these norms and institutions exist the way they are, like whether it's recusal from a prosecution or how we treat political like crimes from our political opponents or how we talk in judicial races. Like there's a good reason why those things exist. And but there's also a good reason why people have jettisoned them. I get it, but at the same time, this is this is not a great place to be for us as a country. Yeah, and I, I hope that's I hope it's more than just rhetoric. When Judge Brodsewicz says in her victory speech, when she's trying to bring it back to some normalcy, right? And she's like making it clear, like, look, yes, the, you know what what how I feel, and you know where I'm coming from on some of these things. But look, ninety nine percent of what she you know, of what comes in front of her as a judge on that Supreme Court is not going to have to do with any of that stuff. Right. And and so the hope is, is that she just, and I think probably will, will just do a very good job with mm-hmm. those things. And and I feel like that's where she was trying to go. Now, transitioning to the next topic, we're going to talk about something coming out of this that I think should make us all feel uh, pretty hopeful uh, was the youth turnout. Um, and so before we get into the, the next segment, the youth turnout um, in Wisconsin, you had Put this here for us, Ravi. That um, what she let's see got more than eighty percent of young people uh, in, in certain in the key areas. areas. Yeah, so yeah. like areas around colleges. So like the area um, where uh, University of Wisconsin Eau Claire is. Janet received you know one thousand one hundred sixty seven votes to Kelly's one sixty three. That's more than eighty seven percent of young people casting their vote for Janet. So there's like certain pockets. Like obviously, it takes time to truly analyze this stuff, but it does seem like the the young people are, you know, they're Democrats by and large. And I think like you see, they look at the GOP and just you know aren't convinced that they have anything meaningful to offer right now. And that's despite a rather aggressive effort to recruit young people. If you look at the Daily mm-hmm. Wire, et cetera, they're recruiting these young people who talk about cancel culture on college and you're not being able to speak your mind and yada, yada, yada. And all this kind of stuff, I'm sure it's recruiting people to their cause. It's not recruiting enough for them right now. Like this is a demographic time bomb. I keep wondering when, and I hate to even put this out there, but I keep wondering how long it's going to be before Republicans try and make major uh, races happen in the summer. Be like particularly in college towns because <laughs> yeah. you know they, they already have Smart. this thing where they try and make it where you you can't use a student id to vote and so all of the like in a college town when you're not in that college town over the summer necessarily i'm just surprised they keep allowing these elections to be held during the school year it's a uh, game of whack-a-mole because then you can't incentivize because like they're going to go back somewhere so then you got to also right. stop them from voting where they're going home yep. so it's tough out there you know i feel you you almost feel for them you know and they're they're sort of this this very difficult puzzle of evil that they've got to put together. Like sometimes it's like hard. The pieces don't fit together, Jason. Like you know, you've it's, got a thousand pieces. It's like a it's like a a ten year old who has spun this web of lies to his parents that he never intended. It started with one little lie to get out of being grounded, and then it became now he's needing four alibis and he can't remember what he said three days ago, and like he needs to learn his lesson. But it's almost kind of funny to watch him try. You know, he doesn't know what to do. I, I, I so. There's like a good TV show out there uh, about, like, you know, like these guys calling each other up and being like, look, you got all these young people coming back here. Like, what am I supposed to do with them? I mean, like, you know, it's like a Keystone Cops. All right. Speaking of young people, by the way, my former state of Tennessee. Well, before hundreds, we go there, we should oh, wait. we should hear from one more sponsor. Oh, yeah. Uh, we got so, yeah. so many sponsors. Look at us. OK. Yeah. Yeah. But we're coming to we're coming to Tennessee. One more. Uh, you know, a, a story that I think people will find inspiring, but also at the same time, just like everything else, inspiring, but also like, ooh, you know, word of warning. But before we go there, let's hear from another sponsor. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that Ravi and I are really into some stuff that people find obnoxious, like 
optimizing and nutrition and fitness and that kind of thing. But that's because we're working professionals and being a working professional is not the easiest thing to do. There's a lot of stress involved in the daily grind. If you're not careful, that stress can start to take a toll on your body, not only draining you of vital energy, but making you magnesium deficient. Magnesium deficiency is like a big deal. It can lead to higher levels of stress, irritability, trouble sleeping. It can contribute to muscle cramps. I'm a guy in my 40s who plays sports. I cannot have muscle cramps. Doesn't work for me. Gotta have enough magnesium. That's why I recommend that you supplement with magnesium daily. You can experience a number of positive health benefits just from getting enough magnesium, including better sleep, more energy, healthy blood pressure, less irritability, stronger bones, reduced muscle cramping, even fewer migraines. For an exclusive offer for our listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash majority54. And for a limited time, BioOptimizers, the makers of, mag- of Magnesium Breakthrough, is offering additional bonus gifts. They're including free bottles of their powerful digestive enzymes, masszymes, and of their patented probiotic P3OM. That means that you're going to get free gifts to try with your purchase that will support your digestive system. Visit magbreakthrough.com slash majority54 and enter code majority54 to activate this exclusive limited time offer. That's magbreakthrough.com slash majority54. Whether or not you're a parent, you've probably been hearing a lot about the culture wars that are happening in public schools. We talk about it on this show all the time, whether it's the the anti-CRT, which is critical race theory movement, or books that they're trying to ban or, or whatever. We talk about it on here a lot. And frequently, conservatives are putting their most effective warriors on the front lines of this fight, moms. And on season four of the White Picket Fence podcast, host and mom Julie Kohler is asking, why is motherhood such a powerful force in American politics? She's examining the myths that we've built around motherhood in our culture and unpacking why the right, through groups like Moms for Liberty, has been so effective in using mothers to fire up their base. Plus, Julie's talking to progressive mom activists about how they're organizing together to fight back against the conservative agenda. Uh, Look, I am a fan of taking real people and having them become active parts of the movement. Uh, Now, unfortunately, they're taking real people and making them active parts of the bad side of the movement on the other side. So you you have to actually have good people do the right things on our side. And that's where uh, a movement like this comes in. And it's where the White Picket Fence podcast comes in. So you can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, for new listeners, I just for background, I used to be a school principal in Tennessee. And actually, some of my former students, including of hundreds of others, you know, packed into the state capitol earlier this week on Monday night and, you know, chanted, protested, you know, talking about the need for gun control. And, you know, to me, this was a a beautiful moment of people making their voices heard. And they're going up against a legislature that seems, (laughs) Jason, particularly uninterested in what they have to say. Like, I wouldn't say I'm optimistic that they're going to be doing anything here. No, uh, um, in fact, they are, they're trying. To, well, first, let's uh, let's hear some because I, I, I it warms my heart uh, to hear the sound of young people like getting really involved, because as we just talked about, it's everybody's favorite hobby uh, next to like uh, beating on the on the VA uh, rhetorically <laughs> is to say that young people will never vote. Right. So uh, so let's hear some of, of the sounds of, of these folks outside the, the Capitol. And so that was that. Um, there also was where uh, chants of thoughts and prayers aren't enough. Let's play this clip too, because I particularly like this chant. Uh, and then the last one, which I think is sort of in the spirit of protests, like just that these folks, that these young people are, are not pretending to know how to protest uh, is this last clip, I think. So I, I don't know. It makes me feel inspired. Uh, your your point is right that do we think that it's likely that the Tennessee Republicans are going to be moved by all of this? 
No, but, you know, we talk sometimes on this show, like an old reference we like to make is loosening the jar, that not mm -hmm. everything is about what happens immediately, but that a sustained action eventually does make change and it has to start somewhere. And this feels much like the previous March for Our Lives uh, uh, felt. This actually feels like something to me. I don't know about well, you. I do want to be fair to the, the Tennessee legislature. They did move really fast, Jason. They're moving to <laughs> yeah. expel. They're moving to expel three Democratic members of the House for disorderly behavior after they led protest chants from the floor chamber. These are three members, um, some of whom I know and have had many disagreements with, but I back them up here, and they uh, could lose their jobs. This has happened before. I would say not comparable circumstances. So the House has previously expelled. Eight lawmakers, six were Confederate racists in the 19th century for refusing to affirm the citizenship of formerly enslaved black people, one uh, in the 20th century for a conviction on bribery, and one in the 21st century for sexual misconduct. I watched that one play out, which was a mess when I was down in Tennessee. So that's what we're comparing this to, leading a protest. Now, they did violate the rules of the House, but you know what you do is you get censured, yada, yada, yada. Like, look, I believe in following legislative rules because like we, you know, I want to be fair because when Marjorie Taylor Greene interrupts people, like whatever, I know it's not the same cause, but there are reasons why you have rules for how you engage. But you don't, we don't expel people for this type of stuff. We expel them for bigger, you know, crazy stuff like, you know, what we just talked about. And uh, this is a rather troubling pattern as well, because removing people who are democratically elected for things that aren't crimes, that seems like a, uh, a slippery slope. Yeah. Um, this is just, you know what? I looked at this and I'm like, the legislators, the Republican legislators should lighten the hell up. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, what, what happened was, is it, you know, they, they went to the front of the chamber. I think they had a, a bullhorn and there were protesters in the gallery and they, they led a few of these chants, like a call and response. Okay, I can see where it upsets you. But like, I mean, how precious are you, really? Because I, I remember, it, it reminds me of something that happened, and I wrote about this in my first book. Um, there were so many things that I found that there were these silly little traditions that made no sense, but they were just there and everybody treated them like they, they were so important in the house. Um, this is why you, you frequently see in Missouri and other places fights over things like dress code, like voters mm -hmm. could care less that voters. I mean, if, if people were showing up in shorts and t-shirts and sandals with no sleeves, it would just be very Missouri. It wouldn't offend right. any voters. Right. But, uh, but you know, they act like it's a huge deal. the, Example I was thinking of is when I first got to the house um, back in 2009, uh, I remember learning the hard way that there was this little unspoken tradition, this unwritten rule that uh, you never communicated directly with the um, hometown newspaper of another legislator unless you talk to them about it first, which makes no sense, right? <laughs> um, it, I mean, like, why is that? Well, I, I figured out why is because a lot of these rural legislators, um, you know, their their newspapers can't put a reporter at the Capitol; they don't have the resources for it. So, what does the rural newspaper? What do they print and where do they get their news? They get it from the legislator. And so they would literally just like every week, basically just print a version of the press release that was sent out as to what happened that week from that legislator and what right. a hero they were in it and their own story. So the way I learned about this was we had a budget fight going on where um, the there's a, a legislator from uh, Warrensburg, Missouri, who was uh, trying to. Uh, cut out of the budget every legislative liaison that the governor had because they had worked on the governor's campaign, most of them, and he didn't like them. So he wanted to cut their salary out so he could try and get them fired. Well, then he took some of that money and he put it into, uh, he just had to put it somewhere. So for political reasons, he was like, I'm putting it into the Meals on Wheels line item. Now, none of this was going to make it the distance. It all was going to get fixed in the Senate and everybody knew that. But then he did a press release where he said he's saving Meals on Wheels. And I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> so I, I didn't know any better. I didn't know about this unwritten rule. So I called the newspaper and I was like, you're not going to print that. And they're like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm this guy. I'm from Kansas City, but I was there. This is not what happened. So then they run this front page article with all these quotes from me saying, actually, he just tried to fire all the people who do the constituent services for you and, and the people who need Meals on Wheels. And none of that money is going to stay in. He's just pretending. And that was the that like hit his newspaper or hit, hit his porch that weekend. He was very upset. There was almost a fist fight on the floor of the house. I had violated all of the rules. 
rules. But what's fun about that was, was that after that, that unwritten rule just kind of went away. Good. (laughs) Because because people were like, "Why, why are we doing this? My point is, yeah, I guess, sure, you're not supposed to stand at the front of the chamber with a bullhorn. But the idea that they have done something so egregious that you have to expel them from the chamber is these people being very precious about their little rules and their little way of life and the way things work in their very special place with their special ceilings and their colorful windows and their stained glass that make them feel like they're doing something of greater import than they're actually doing on a regular basis, which is on a day-to-day basis, they're milling about and gossiping about each other. That's how state legislatures actually work. So I just found that part kind of funny. Well, that's a good segue to our grab and art, which is very simple. Go to marchforourlives.com. Uh, support them and their work. They're doing amazing work all around the country. I'm sure our listeners are familiar with them. Uh, and I also want to thank you. You know, one of our grabbers a little while ago was the Wisconsin Democratic Party and the effort to uh, win that race. So um, I think our, our, our listeners were probably they were probably good for ten points in that. I mean, there so otherwise go. it would I have say, been a one yeah. point win. I'd yeah, say that yeah. majority fifty four uh, bump. All right. Well, let's bring it home with one for us, Jason. What's happening in your world? Uh, man, you know what? The last few weeks, I have had a return of terrible back pain, which is, I think, going to set up so well what we're going to talk about for your world, <laughs> uh, which is, so I, you know, <clears throat> I have pretty much overcome this, uh, re- this chronic back pain thing over the last few years. I've been really active, but for whatever reason, it just started to get worse and worse. And I, I think, you know, knock on wood, I think I might be rounding a corner, but I just, you know, I just wanted to uh, sort of say something simpatico with people out there who experience back pain. Uh, I haven't had it this bad in a while to where it was so limiting to where like, like a couple of days ago, uh, Diana had to like help me get out of bed. I mean, the morning oh, no. is the worst. And then, you know, and I've been seeing chiropractors and I have a physical therapist who I see and I've gotten some medicine for it. And, but I think I'm rounding a corner and I'm not going to have to necessarily do like the orthopedic surgeon route. And I actually think I might be back to like, playing baseball in, in a couple of weeks, knock on wood. But man, when you, when your back hurts, it's like, you can't think about anything else. It's, you know, I read somewhere once that it's the leading cause of lost productivity in the workplace in America. Oh my God. Um, and I just, because it's like, man, when your lower back hurts, it's like every movement hurts. It's all you can think about. It's so hard to focus. Um, but I'm, it, it's why I'm standing right now to do the, the show instead of sitting. Uh, but I think I'm rounding a corner. Now, with that said, <laughs> no, no. Uh, what it's setup. your 40th birthday. <laughs> what a setup. Well, okay. My, my birthday isn't technically until April 28th, but we yeah, came but down here. Just you're celebrating it now. Yeah. I have a bunch of friends down here. Most of them have now left, but we, we spent the weekend and a couple of days just hanging out here, playing tennis, surfing, hanging out. It was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, it was, it's just good to be down here. And I'm just getting up there, man. Hopefully... Hopefully no back pain anytime soon, but you know, I don't have if much have, support. Yeah. I, I, I you'll be fine if you haven't had it yet. I, mine was I mostly fun, from being a thin guy carrying a lot of weight in the army. I do yeah. have Go a ahead. funny bet though that I, I sat down here. I have a friend named Mickey, uh, who I don't know if you ever met Mickey, but he's a very boisterous Brazilian and we talk a lot of trash on the tennis court. Neither of us are good at tennis, but we were talking a lot of trash and we set a uh, I think it'll be like a month, a month and a half from now. We're going to be playing a, a full-on tennis match, uh, and the loser has to get a tattoo. Uh, oh my of, gosh! Of pura vida, you know, like the the saying, like of course, you can saying uh, on our butt. So whoever loses that, yeah, match, I don't think you have any tattoos. I don't do you? have any tattoo. Yeah, and he's got. Does he's he got many? He's got many. So this is the stakes are so much certain. higher for you I'm, in I'm this f- bet. I'm just confident I'm going to win. But what what is your you know, what is your general position on tattoos in general? I mean, you I haven't actually, had one funny, to this point. I just did a segment on Lost Debate about this. Uh, my general, oh, yeah? my this is going to be the most me answer to this. Is like I'm a contrarian, and everybody I grew up with got tattoos, and now I see people like I saw somebody walking down the street the other day in my neighborhood in New York who had a Harvard shirt on with tattoo sleeves on, and I'm like, okay, this is no longer countercultural. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, I think the countercultural thing is to have no tattoo now. Do you have any tattoos? Uh-huh. You must have like a military tattoo or something, huh? I don't have any tattoos. And here's the thing. I have come very close to getting a tattoo a few times. Um, the first time was was that. it was I was going to get my combat patch on my right shoulder when I came home. Uh, and then uh, it's maybe it was prior to that or just after. Uh, at one point, Diana and I were thinking of getting like, uh, like wedding ring tattoos. Um, and then after uh, I went to therapy for PTSD, Diana and I were going to get matching tattoos to sort of signify that milestone in our lives. 
And we were very close to doing it. And then um, I told my dad about it. And my dad, who, you know, we're a Jewish family, but my dad's never been like particularly outwardly. Uh, he doesn't talk about faith a lot or anything. Um, and he said he was just like really against it. And my dad, you know, I'm a grown man. My dad is very rarely really against anything I propose. <laughs> and, and, but, and he was just like, you know, Jews don't get tattoos. We don't do, you know, and, and it's a whole uh, thing about Jewish cemetery and all that. But that wasn't my dad's reason. My dad was just like, well, we're not supposed to get tattoos. Like it was almost like he was like, God doesn't want you to get a tattoo. And, and we left there and Diana's like, we well, still want to get those tattoos. Right. I'm like, no, my dad says I can't. I'm oh my God. <laughs> like, and, oh my and God. so, so we didn't. And, and, and it was just interesting because my dad had, my dad has never told me really anything that was like being a Jew means this. Like it's never been like, like I went to Catholic school and I think he understood that that might mean I would end up not being Jewish. And he was like, okay, you know, he'd come to terms with that. Uh, but anyway, that's why I don't have any tattoos, but I am, um, sort of perpetually tattoo curious. And so, so is Diana. Well, I have a rule. I dated a Brazilian tattoo artist once, and she had to re- remove her tattoos all over her neck. Like she basically got a bunch of bad tattoos early in her existence. And I think it was her rule that I've adopted, which is wait a year between any idea and the execution of that idea. And she was like, "If you wait a year, you'll never get a tattoo." Because she was like, I've "Never <laughs> met anybody. Never met anybody who came in and was like, I've been wanting to have this tattoo forever." You know, it's like very impulsive. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Uh- so- but yet, if you lose this bet, do you wait a year? No, I'm not. Don't, lose. don't lose the bet. Yeah, I don't lose. lose. I mean, don't lose the bet. You should be practicing. I'm right confident. Now. I'm confident. I actually right. will be right I after mean, this. The good news is, you, you, if you did, it's not like that tattoo would bother you. Like, it's not like you're yeah, getting a tattoo that's like, Mickey is my daddy or something. It would be a funny know, story. Like, Honestly, yeah. it's almost worth it for the story to be like, what do you have a tattoo? Yeah, I have a tattoo on my butt because I lost a tennis match. <laughs> it's actually kind of a good story. My prediction is that if you get one tattoo, you're going to get more than one tattoo. That's the thing about me is I figure if I were to get like my combat patch on my right shoulder, I'm probably getting four or five more tattoos. You know, that's just how I am. So, all right. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, This has been Tattoo Talk with Ravi and Jason. Remember to to subscribe to Majority 54 wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority 54. Please leave us a five-star review. Continue to let us know know, how you think things are going with the switch over to Midas and that kind of thing. Uh, Thank you to the Midas Mighty. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.